Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equip You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to conclude our look at dealing with difficult emotions and situations in our lives. We've been talking about anger and bitterness and resentment and so much more. And today, we're going to talk about navigating conflict and criticism. And this is one that is really, really important Um And the reason is, is if we can navigate conflict well, we can actually be a tool, an instrument by which the Lord can use because our world today would rather not deal with conflict. We would rather minimize it. We would rather neglect it. And to be honest with you here, as as I'm going to be in love, I'm going to say that many Christians do not deal well with criticism. We get easily offended when we shouldn't. We, we, we should have thick skin and we should remember that of, of all people, we are fully accepted and fully loved by the Lord. Now that said, every single one of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you str- every single one of us struggles in these areas, struggles with dealing with conflict, dealing with criticism. And that's why even if you know these things that we're going to talk about today, it can be a reminder, it can be a refresher, it can be an encouragement, and it can be a help to us. And we all need help. And by the way, there is nothing wrong in fact, it's perfectly biblical according to Proverbs 11 and Titus 2 to, if you're a man, go to an older man and get some counsel about a difficult situation or even how to deal with criticism. And if you're a woman, it is okay to go to that older woman in your church and get some counsel. It is good. The New Testament does not hide the fact that in nearly every church in the history of the church has experienced conflict of some kind or type. And as the New Testament writers address these matters, they provide invaluable instruction on how believers are to think, how they're to act, how they're to treat one another when conflict arises. And by studying churches in the New Testament and the instructions given to them regarding conflict, we can learn biblical principles for handling conflict in a constructive, Christ-honoring way. And one of the most important principles that we could discover is given in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's this, when conflict arises, our attitudes and our behaviors should reflect our new life in Christ, given by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We are to display the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. We are to be Spirit-controlled and not flesh-controlled or out of control. Serious discord threatened the life and the unity of the newly planted churches of Galatia. And so Paul warned the new believers in Galatians 5.15, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If these new Christian believers did not stop fighting, no one would survive the carnage. And as Paul warns of the potential for mutual destruction within the believing community, he charges readers to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh or to display the works of the flesh. Now, much of the contentious infighting that plagues many churches today results from believers acting according to the flesh and not the Spirit. 
In Galatians, Paul focuses on eight social sins of the flesh that ruin relationships and divide the churches. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, which says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And as you consider these works of the flesh, know this, the Holy Spirit is absolutely opposed to them. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And so what Paul is doing is cataloging these social vices that stand as an objective check to our behavior. And so the next time you're involved in a conflict, you need to stop and think, You need to know that you're yielding to the desires of the flesh if any of the above sinful vices are displayed in your behavior or your attitude. And the one thing Christian believers are not to do when engaged in conflict is to revert back to our old pre-conversion fleshly ways of behavior. Now, when facing conflict, instead of biting and devouring one another and displaying the destructive social sins of the flesh, Paul instead says in Galatians 5, 16, 18, and 25, and in Galatians 6, 8, that we are to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to sow to the Spirit. Nothing but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to enable believers to resist the desires of the flesh and to live Christ-like lives. You see, the Spirit seeks to form Christ-like character qualities in the life of every individual Christian and every local church body. These qualities promote right attitudes, godly conduct, and healthy relationships. These very qualities that strife-torn congregations in Galatians desperately needed. Paul's nine descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit, they form a composite picture of Christ-like character and conduct when Paul says in Galatians 5, 22-23, Love, joy, peace, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're wanting to know more about those, you can go uh, to our podcast, Equipping You in Grace. I did an episode, uh, I believe it's titled The Fruits of the Spirit, and there I talk about this in even more depth. But we know that we are walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, and we see the fruit of the Spirit displayed in our daily uh, conduct and inner attitudes. In fact, we can say that the fruit of the Spirit provides an objective guide to our attitudes and behavior when dealing with conflicts. And so we should always ask, am I displaying a Christ-like character in the life of the Spirit when I deal with disagreement or someone who opposes me? Well, we should all be able to answer that question with a yes. But we all know that sometimes, or maybe even many times, the answer is no. And we need to repent. Now, when caught in a storm of conflict, one fruit of the Spirit that's especially needed to navigate safely through the storm is self-control, as Paul talks about it in Galatians 5.23. Lack of self-control is a major problem during conflict, but the Holy Spirit provides power over the fleshly excesses generated by sinful passions of anger, jealousy, hatred, and the spirit of revenge. Now, Christian believers who control their emotions and thinking by the power of the Spirit are best able to handle conflict constructively and bring about a just resolution. They are Christians who don't bite and devour their brothers and sisters in Christ. In contrast, when people act according to the flesh, they are out of control emotionally. They do not display the fruit of the Spirit or and have the potential to do terrible damage to other people and to the name of Christ. Conflict presents one of the toughest challenges to walking by the Spirit. 
If only we would recognize that every conflict is a test as to whether or not we will display Christ-like character and the reality of the gospel in our lives. Will we as Christians display the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit or the ugliness of the flesh? Now, we're not only going to talk about conflict, but we're also going to talk about criticism. And by the way, just a word before we get started on talking about criticism. Both conflict and criticism, they reveal whether we are growing to be spiritually mature or not. And this is where we need to talk about this for just a minute, that every single one of us, no longer how long or how mature we are, we all have room to grow. We all have room to grow in dealing with and navigating uh, conflict and criticism in our lives. But what the point I'm going to make here is this, that what conflict and criticism reveal is the state of our present maturity in Christ. That means that you might have dealt well with criticism and conflict in the past, but you can't rest on your laurels on this. You can't rest on past achievements or successes in dealing with criticism and conflict. This is why we need to keep growing in Christ and, and why Christ is continuing to form the fruits of the Spirit more and more in our lives. Because what I, what I want to say is this, is that what conflict and criticism reveal is our present state of spiritual maturity in Christ. This reveals where our heart is, where we still have indwelling sin. That difficult person is is a scalpel, is a as a sandpaper being used by the Holy Spirit to buff you, to make you more like Christ. It's not first and foremost what that person is doing or what that person says. What matters first and foremost in the eyes of God and of Scripture is how you respond to that criticism and to that conflict. You know, it's easy to get offended, as I said, and upset when somebody says something. But it's a mature Christian who can stop and pause and think and understand whether this is, as we'll talk about, a just criticism, whether it has some basis, it does the accusation stick, or is it an unjust criticism, meaning that it has no actual basis in fact. And this is where we need, again, if you're an older man, or if you're a younger man, you need an older man. If you're an older man, you need another older man or your pastor. If you're an older woman, you need an older woman to help you. If you're a younger woman, you need an older woman to help you on these things. Now, as we're talking about just and unjust criticism, what my point is, is that criticism can either be helpful or unhelpful. Criticism is unhelpful when it aims to attack the person and belittles them. Criticism is valuable when it seeks to help the person grow to be like Jesus. In fact, we can see this from Luke 23, 6-12, where we see Jesus interact with his critics on his way to the cross by being quiet in his response to his criticism instead of responding to the critics. And we're also going to discover here how godly criticism motivated by loving God and loving people, as well as why unhelpful criticism is so harmful. Luke 23, 6 or 12 says this, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length. 
But he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in his splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. The account in Luke 23, 6-16 is found only in Luke's gospel. Luke recounts this incident to reveal that both Pilate and Herod found Jesus innocent. Herod was glad in Luke 23, 8, not because he wanted to kill Jesus, but because he longed to see Jesus perform some sign. Jesus makes no answer in this passage, and his silence here fulfills Isaiah 53:7, placing the responsibility for his death squarely on his accusers. Now, Jesus didn't respond to injustice in this passage. Whenever someone asked him to confess his true identity, he testified that he was the Son of God or the King of the Jews, or whatever proper title they wanted to give to him. Why did Jesus refuse to say anything to defend himself? Well, it may have been because there was nothing else to say. Herod had already had his chance to hear the gospel and now hardened his heart. By the time he closed his his conscience and refused to repent, there was nothing left for Jesus or anyone else to say to him. This is a warning to anyone who rejects the free gift of God's grace. Eventually, the day is going to come when when Jesus will have no more gospel to give you. Jesus knew that there was no need to defend himself because his father would vindicate him at the right time by raising him from the dead. In fact, we can say that his very refusal to argue his own case was in fact another proof of his perfect innocence. Psalm 37, 5-7 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as a noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. These were all good reasons for Jesus not to speak in his own defense. His example reminds us not to be so quick to defend ourselves when we're attacked unjustly. Instead, Jesus' example here reminds us to wait patiently for the Lord to defend us. We need to remember the example Jesus set for us and what Peter taught us in 1 Peter 2, 22-23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And this is one for the reason why Jesus refused to speak in his own defense, a reason that goes beyond anything we could ever do. Suffering in silence was part of the work that Jesus was called to do for our salvation. It was the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7 by refusing to protest his own innocence or to even strike back at his accusers. The image Isaiah used to convey the spotless innocence of the afflicted Savior was the pure image of a sacrificial lamb. In his quiet submission to the torments of his oppressors, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and thereby proved that he was a Savior whom God had promised to send. Jesus suffered in silent majesty without protest so he could do the perfect work of our salvation. And so never lose hope that Jesus did this so that he would have something to say when we ourselves are put on trial. 
One day we will all appear before God for judgment. If we have nothing to say, then it will not be because of our perfect innocence, but because there's nothing we can really say in defense of our sinful selves. The good news is is that Jesus will have something to say. Though silent in his own defense, he will not be silent in defense of anyone who trusts in the Lord. Jesus has promised that one day he will openly acknowledge everyone who openly acknowledges him in Luke 12, 8. Through faith in Christ, when you at last appear before God justly accused of all of your sin, Jesus will plead the merits of his own royal and innocent righteousness. And having suffered for your sins all the way to the cross, he will speak up and tell his Father to give you not the verdict that you deserve, but the verdict that he deserves. Now, let's switch gears here and talk about how do we best handle criticism? You know, we need to we need to talk about this today because, you know what, let's be honest, who hasn't been unjustly criticized on social media or on YouTube or on, a, on an email or in person or on and on and on? The best way to handle criticism as a Christian is to get on your knees and seek the face of God in his word and prayer. Any criticism that Christians offer should be grounded in love. That's because Ephesians 4.15 commands us to speak the truth in love, and that should be our primary guide in criticism. Godly criticism is true. It's loving. It ought to come from a humble, caring heart that wishes the best for the other person. Godly criticism should never be bitter. It should never be condescending. It should never be insulting or cold-hearted. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not exist on its own way. It, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So criticism then, we can say, if it is loving, will express these attributes. And also we need to say that criticism must be grounded in the truth of God's word. Sometimes criticism is based on hearsay. That's gossip. Uninformed criticism will, in most situations, end up embarrassing the critic when the truth is revealed, as we see in Proverbs 18.13. The self-righteous Pharisee criticized Jesus based on their own faulty stances when truth was not on their side. Godly criticism is concerned to be critical only of what the Bible is critical of. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches that the Word of God is profitable for reproof and correction. In other words, the inspired Word of God leads Christians to analyze everyday situations critically. And while discussing how to handle criticism is critical, Christians also need to be aware of a critical spirit. There is a significant difference between helping somebody grow in grace and being overly critical. A critical spirit is never pleased. It always expects to find disappointment wherever it looks. And so rather Rather than looking for evidence of the grace of God and loving people, what a critical spirit does is it judges falsely. It's easily provoked and it accounts for every wrong. A critical spirit also damages the critique and the critic. And yet, we need to say that biblical criticism is helpful, it's loving, it's based on the truth of God's word. Correction is to be gentle since it comes from love. Galatians 5, 22-23 teaches that the Spirit wants to produce in God's people love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we can say if criticism cannot be expressed in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, it is better left unsaid. 
Feedback has been called the breakfast of champions. Unfortunately, most of us have a hard time eating it. We have a hard time taking and eating that humble pie. In fact, we need to say that so often we misinterpret this feedback or even constructive criticism as a personal attack and in our pride, in our anger, we counterattack in self-defense. What we could have received as a positive stepping stone, we turn into a stumbling block. And so how can we learn to receive personal criticism in a God-honoring way? The first thing is to maintain an attitude or a posture of humility. This is most important and it's most difficult thing of all. Probably every time we get offended at a critical word, the the root of the problem is our own hearts is pride. And Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. There was once a story of a godly pastor raked over the coals by a deacon. Once he had patiently listened to all of the brother's accusations against him, he responded with something like this, Brother, the case with me is far, far worse than what you've said. If you knew me better, you wouldn't think of so well of me. But as for the truth of God's word, I must be faithful to it and must continue to preach it to the best of my ability. The humble response of the pastor broke the bitter heart of the deacon who began apologizing. Oh no, brother, there's nothing wrong with you that you've done. I'm the one who is wrong. What a demonstration of God's truth that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1 says, if, if the pastor defended himself and counterattacked the deacon, the whole situation would have turned out much worse. Second, give an honest ear to criticism. Not every criticism is going to be valid, but likely there's going to be a grain of truth in what is said. A rule of thumb should be for every Christian. Seek first to understand, even then clarify, and then be understood. Only by patiently listening will we benefit from the criticism, correct any misunderstandings, and right any wrongs. Most of us don't even think about trying to benefit from criticism. That sounds as ridiculous as benefiting from a heart attack. But criticism is not like a heart attack. It's like the chest pains that alert us there's a problem. Just as wisdom dictates that we see a doctor when the chest pains come, so we should respond quickly to reproofs. Proverbs 15 reminds us it is prudent to regard reproofs. In Proverbs 15.5, since the person who hates reproof will die, as we see in Proverbs 15.10, and also Proverbs 15.31-32. Third, repent and make restitution. There are criticisms that will be honest and just, and when we receive criticism, revealing sinful attitudes, words, or actions, we should thank God for these and repent. We show our repentance by changing a sinful attitude or by seeking forgiveness from the one we offended with our words. Fourth, consider but do not dwell on all criticisms. This is easier said than done because there are times when people are going to criticize us for things that are not sinful. Like, I don't like the way you dress. You really should smile more often. Don't you have to sing? Why do you have to sing so loud? You really shouldn't preach with notes. These criticisms are not based on biblical and moral principles, but a personal preference and opinion. They may be rooted in personality and temperament and background differences, but are probably left better unsaid. And when these come, consider them, but not too much. In his lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon advocated that every preacher needs a blind eye and a deaf ear to certain things, he says, since you cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore the best thing is to stop your own ears, and never mind what is spoken. 
Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22 says, Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. In other words, God expressly forbids us to listen to some criticism and complaints. Simply remember that the words are wind and that you too have sometimes harshly criticized others over petty things. Fifth, view criticism as a way God makes us more like Jesus. Oh, how critical this is. God's sovereignty in our lives is so practical. Believing that God uses even others' evil words for our good will keep us from so much bitterness and resentment. In 2 Samuel 16, when Shimei cursed David and Barum, Abishai said to David in 2 Samuel 16, 9, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? Let me go over and take off his head. Well, David responds in 2 Samuel 16, 11 through 12, Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David knew that God was in control of this cursing enemy and that he could use it for his good. How much more should we trust God to use personal criticism for our good? It's personal. Are you approachable and teachable? Do friends, do family members, do church members feel comfortable approaching you with constructive criticism? Have you learned to distinguish between helpful and unhelpful criticism? Can you turn a blind eye or deaf ear to unhelpful or ill-meaning words? Do you humbly welcome criticism, believing that God will use it for your good in your life? The question that you should ask as, as I'm talking about this, the question is, what can you learn from this? That's the question that you should be asking in the midst of conflict, in the midst of criticism. What is the Lord trying to teach me in this situation? How is he trying to make me more like Christ? Those questions I just asked, they get to the heart. They get to the root of the issue. You know, if we're going to be defensive, that says something about me. If I'm defensive in response to somebody, I need to, I need to pull back and I really need to pray. If I'm upset, I need to pull back and pray. Now, there's going to be times when, you know, we do get angry righteously but we also need to be careful and we need to get some wisdom on how to express that righteous indignation well do i go and talk to that person and tell them about what they're doing uh how am i going to do that these are matters of wisdom and the bible has much to say not only about how we're to speak but how we're to engage when we speak. That's the matter of wisdom. That's the matter of spiritual maturity. That's where our faith, where the rubber meets the road. That's where we're going to become more like Christ. You know, you might think, you know what, when I come to that person and I am engaging them, I'm, I'm coming with an even tone of voice. I'm coming with a heart full of love. I'm coming with a heart full of concern. But then what happens when that person throws it back in your face? Do you get mad? Do you get upset? You know, those are questions. And and this is why you need to have lots of tools in your tool belt when that happens. You need to maybe count to 10. You maybe need to say a quick prayer. You need to ask the Lord to help you to see that person through his eyes, through the eyes of the chief shepherd. You need the help of the Lord. You need the help of his grace in all of these things and navigating conflict and, and criticism well. You need the help of the Lord. These are things that are hard, especially when we're talking about you know difficult people and difficult situations and even navigating church discipline 
or navigating conflict with a very difficult family member or friend or coworker, or maybe you're a manager and navigating a, a, that difficult employee and on and on we could go. But these are matters that the Bible has a lot to say about. What I want you to do is this. If you're struggling with navigating conflict in your marriage or or criticism uh, in your ministry or in a relationship or in your marriage or and on and on, what I want to encourage you, if you're a guy, I want to encourage you to meet with an older man and pick pick their brain. Ask them, how do you navigate conflict? How do you navigate criticism? And just sit and learn. Sit and take some notes. Maybe bring your laptop if you're like me and, and take some notes. Um, if you're a, a, a younger woman, ask a, ask a godly, you know, older woman that you trust that's seasoned in the faith and solid in doctrine and ask her, how do you deal with conflict in your marriage and your relationships? And then how do you deal with uh, criticism in, in your marriage, you know, from your spouse, from other people in your workplace? What are some lessons? What are some keys? And you want to write that, write down whatever comes out of their mouth because what what you're going to find is you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn from people who have not only walked with the Lord and reading and studying and meditating the, the word, but you're going to learn from as they've lived out the truth, as they walked by faith in the Lord and in the in the sure and the steady promises of his word. This is why younger men need older men. This is why younger women need older women in their lives. We need one another. We have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need, as Spurgeon said, but we also have a great need of one another because we are his and he is ours. And so I hope that this episode is really helpful. It's a foundational episode to help you learn to begin to deal better with conflict, with criticism. And as we end, let me say one thing very personally. There have been times and situations where I've dealt with conflict well, and there have been times when I have dealt with conflict very, very poorly. And I've had to go back and I've had to specifically apologize for specific things that I have done and specifically repent and apologize to that person. There's even been situations where criticism was given with a heart of love. They came to me, they shared their criticism, and I've responded very poorly. And then I've had to go back and also uh, repent before the Lord and repent to that person, confessing my sin to them. And you know what? These things hurt. They're hard. But you know what? It's worth eating humble pie in both cases. Humble pie means that you own up to your failure. You own up to your sin and you, because you've recognized that there is one in Jesus who is infinitely worthy. He is the treasure of our souls. He is the, he is worth everything. All of more, he is worth more than all the world's gold. He is worth more than all the world's stars. He is worth more than any celebrity or platform or anything. He is worth it all. And as we recognize that and we take it home into our hearts, we can recognize that the difficult person in the in the conflict, the difficult person in receiving criticism is looking us right in the mirror. And think about that as you deal, even as you offer help in criticism or you navigate criticism with another person or you're getting criticism or giving criticism, realize how do you want to be spoken to? How do you want to be treated in this? And pray and ask the Lord, be praying about this situation. Be praying for the other person. 
Be praying that the Lord would show any wicked way in you. And so that take the log out of your own eye. Be praying that the Lord would be transforming you by his grace and the other person as you talk. These things will help. And, be, and they'll help because they'll help us to have the right posture of heart. They'll help us to have a humble heart. They'll help us to be slow to react. And by the way, James 1 tells us that we're to be slow to speak and quick to listen. One last story I'll tell you. I'll always remember this story coming out of high school. My dad, uh, as one of my gifts out of high school, he wrote me about a five-page letter. And the letter, one of the parts of the letter said, you know what, son, I want you to learn James 1.19. Tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I had to pray about that for a long time, about closing my mouth, not being so quick to react to situations, but to think through them, to deal with them, and to realize that even in the midst of dealing with conflict and criticism, it's okay to have my say. It's okay after I've acknowledged the person, after I've acknowledged what they've said, it's okay to clarify. It's okay to, to, to seek to share from my perspective and even say, this is how I see this particular situation. And then to listen to what that other person has to say and then to work through these things. By the way, this is a really key to maturity in communicating between a husband and a wife. You want to learn to deal with conflict in your marriage? Do that. Own up to your failures to communicate well. Own up. Because sometimes, you know, in marriage, if you've been married at any length of time, you can think that you said one thing, but what your spouse heard is the opposite. And when your spouse comes back and says, you know what? You said this, but I think you meant this. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I'm, I, I made a mistake there. Let me, can I s- say that again so that there's no misunderstanding? What this does is it shows humility, acknowledges that they're right, because they probably are, most likely. Because I, I, I will do this. I will say something, and I think, oh, man, I'm being clear as mud. There's no confusion here. And Sarah will come back, and she'll say, no, you said this, but I think you meant this. And what that does is it provides an opportunity not to get irritated, not to get agitated, but to realize, yeah, I probably did. I'm sorry. Um, here's what I meant. That's a humble, godly way to respond, not only to situations about that could potentially blossom into a massive conflict, but it's also a godly way to deal with criticism. And if you do that, what you're doing is you're, you're showing real humility and you're showing intentionality and you're honoring God. And this is such an important thing because, and I'm going to say one last thing. I said I was only going to say one last thing, but I want to say one one more thing. You know, growing up, I, especially in my teenage years, my parents felt like cat and dogs. And it was so hard as a teenager sitting there listening to this. And I, and I would pray and I would cry myself to sleep. And I knew that I started praying, Lord, when I get married, Lord, I don't want to be like this. I don't want my marriage to be like this. You need to help me. And it took a long time for me to learn. And it started with one day sitting in my room. We were married about a year or so. And I started thinking that I oh, here I am a Christian leader. How am I doing it dealing with conflict? How am I doing it leading with owning my own sin with my wife, leading my own home? And I had to confess and repent to the Lord and realize I'm not doing well. And we needed to have some real conversations about this. And it, it took some time. It took some years. 
But by God's grace now, over a decade and more later, my Sarah and I can work through conflict. We may not agree. We may not agree on every single thing, on every jot and tittle of every single point of contention and conflict. And that's okay. We don't have to. But we are able to sit down. We are able to hear each other. We are able to have a conversation. And we're able to work through issues. And sometimes some of those issues require time and others, they require less time. But it it matters. It matters, especially in marriage. It really matters. This is how to stay out of your pastor's office. This is how to stay out of the lawyer's office. This is how to address issues, not only in your marriage, but in your relationship with others. Be intentional. Be purposeful. Realize that you have a part to play and own up to that part and let the other person respond. And you can't do anything about that person's response. That's also another key. Realize that you can't change that person. The only person that that God wants you to take care of is you. So you have to own up to your own failure, repent, confess your sins to the Lord. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So there's a lot that we could say about this. I could probably go on for another uh, 40 minutes, but wrapping this up, be purposeful, be intentional. Whether you're talking to your parent, your parent, you're, you're a child, you're talking, you're a teenager or you're an adult, you're talking to your parent or your husband and wife uh, talking to one another or you're dealing with a church member situation or on and on. Deal, be honest, own up to your failures, deal with criticism, learn from it, grow from it, become more like Christ and honor God, whether in conflict or in criticism. And you will be a vessel. You will be an instrument that God can use powerfully for his glory. Because as I mentioned at the outset, our world doesn't deal well with criticism. It doesn't deal with criticism at all. And it doesn't deal with conflict well. And so by dealing biblically and practically in our lives day to day, day after day, year after year, uh, decade after decade, well in this area, we are going to represent Christ so well. And it's going to be such a witness to a watching world. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Equip You and Grace podcast. Until next time, may God bless you and thank you for tuning in to this show. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.